Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our class number 10 of our 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy. So happy you could join us this morning as people are starting to join us on Zoom and on Facebook Live. Just wanted to say hello and thanks for being here today. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to class number 10 of our 2022 virtual HOA and Condo Academy in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. I'm so glad that you could be here today to talk with us about enforcement of CCNRs and collection of delinquent assessments. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I am the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've enjoyed working with HOAs and condominiums for the past 25 years, and currently my firm represents over 1,000 planned communities and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. I also have served on my board for my HOA and condominium for many years, and so I think I bring a a good diversity of information and experience working with associations as their legal counsel and then also serving on my board. Before we dive into today's seminar, I would like to start off by getting a feel for who's here with us today. It's always helpful for me to know how many board members or owners or managers that we have here with us so that I can tailor my presentation. So we're going to launch two polls for you right now at the same time. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, just go ahead and put your answer in the comments section and we'll factor that into our scoring. So the first question is, in which city do you reside? And then the second question is, let us know what your current role is with your community. Are you a board member? Are you a community manager? Are you an interested homeowner? Okay, let's dive right in and then we're gonna give the poll results here in a few minutes once the numbers come in. What are we gonna work on today? In today's session, we're going to cover the enforcement of CCNRs and the collection of delinquent assessments. I'm also going to give an overview of the new HOA and condominium laws that went into effect on September 24th. We're going to be talking quickly about five bills and give you a useful handout that you can use if you have any further questions on that. And then, as always, at the end of our presentation, we're going to have a free question and answer period where I get to answer the questions that are presented uh, from the people that are listening here today. So if you are joining us on Zoom, go ahead and put your questions in the chat box on Zoom. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can put your comments in the um, comments section on Facebook Live, and then we'll answer those questions. We do ask that you limit yourself to one question per attendee. And be as specific as possible because it's really hard for me to follow up and ask additional questions if I don't quite understand the question. Okay, before we dive in, let's see who is here today joining us. We have a really great representation from basically all over the valley. So we have 3% that are here from Chandler, 8% from Glendale, 3% from Goodyear, 24% from Mesa. Wow, big turnout from Mesa today. 3% from Peoria. from Phoenix, 29% from Scottsdale, and 8% from Surprise. Basically, almost every different area in the Valley are here today as 
participants in the seminar. So great job. Our second question is, what is your current role with your communities? So 66% of you are board members, 11% are managers, and 16% are homeowners with 8% following up as other. Okay, great. So we have a really diverse geographic group today with us. And we also have a large number of board members and an almost an equal number of managers and homeowners that are here. So welcome to all of you. Okay, so first thing we're going to talk a little bit about is the 2022 legislation. As you probably know, the legislature adjourned in late June, and there were five bills that were introduced this year that pertain directly to HOAs and condominiums. All of these bills went into effect on September 24th, and we have a really great cheat sheet, which is a deep dive on the five different topics of the new bills that pertain to HOAs and condos. And we're going to be sharing that with you here shortly via Zoom and Facebook Live so that you'll have that as a reference for any questions that you may have on the new legislation. We also have a great blog on one of the bills that we're also going to be sharing with you. Okay, so just real briefly, the five bills were, let's see, there's four out of the five are definitely things that we'll see on a weekly basis in my practice and with questions from board members and homeowners. And then there's one bill that really won't come into play very often. So the bills that we're going to see pretty regularly are there was a bill on artificial turf and the fact that HOAs can no longer ban artificial turf. We can pass some rules regarding the artificial turf in terms of how it can be installed and the grade and quality and maintenance of it going forward. But that was an important new bill that was passed this year that, of course, only applies to planned communities. Then we had three other bills that apply to both planned communities and condominiums. One deals with political and community activity, and it extends the type of political signs that can be put up in a community, whether it's planned community or condominium, to issues that pertain to the association, like board members, elections, and board member removals, and maybe initiatives that are coming before the community for a vote. So that bill really extends the right of owners to put up political signs for their own association issues, and the association cannot prohibit that. This bill also gives a right for community members to peacefully assemble on the common areas with some restrictions. The board can pass rules regarding that. Third bill talks about first responder flags and um, gives owners a right to fly a first responder flag on their property. The fourth bill um, deals with short-term rentals and enforcement of short-term rentals, and it has Basically, it gives cities, towns, and municipalities a lot of leeway and authority to pass rules um, and ordinances that would require landlord owners to pay a permit fee and register their short-term rentals with the community that they live in, meaning the city, town, or municipality. We can also require them to notify the neighborhood if it's going to be coming a short-term rental, like the immediate neighbors, etc., So that's just an attempt, I think, by the legislature to put some additional teeth in the law so that some of these out-of-control short-term rentals can now be better managed by the cities, towns, and municipalities. And how that will impact associations is that if we have a bad short-term rental, what we can do now is if the city is passing ordinances, and most are in our experience, we're finding that most cities are in the process or already have some ordinances in place to regulate short-term rentals. 
the associations, HOAs and condominiums, if they have a problem short-term rental, they can complain to the city and the city will be investigating it and, and looking for any violations of this new law. The last bill that was passed this year deals with condominium termination. And basically, it just gives a procedure to terminate a condominium after any new condominiums that are established after the effective date of this legislation. So we don't really see that bill as coming into play that often because typically condominiums aren't terminated very frequently. It's a very unusual thing to have that happen. Okay, so keep your eye on those bills. Surprisingly, we haven't had too many questions about the new legislation, but I'm pretty sure that we'll start hearing more about the political signs in communities and also short-term rental issues, especially as we're getting closer to the Super Bowl coming up. We'll be talking about a lot of those topics as we move forward. Okay, let's get right into our presentation for today. We're going to be talking about enforcement of CCNRs and what can associations do to effectively enforce their CCNRs. And I would say probably just as an introductory remarks, some of the most common questions that I get as legal counsel for associations is how do we handle this particular owner who is not abiding by the association's documents? And we're going to give some examples later today of one of the most common enforcement problems, but just off the top of my head, parking, not getting architectural approval prior to making changes to their property. Short-term rentals are a big enforcement issue right now in communities, not paying assessments on time, not maintaining their property, creating a nuisance in the community. These are probably what I would call the most common violations that we see. And so today, what we'd like to do is talk about, okay, every association has violations. How can we best handle these violations so that we correct the violation and we try to make sure that the violations don't continue by the same owners again and again? Okay, we're going to be sharing with you a really helpful cheat sheet. For those of you who may be joining this presentation for the first time, you may not be familiar with our cheat sheets, but we have over 60 cheat sheets on a number of different topics pertaining to associations. And basically, we write cheat sheets whenever we start to see a question again and again from clients. And we try to make it it's a two-page summary that you can read in three to five minutes and give you the full 411 on whatever the issue of the cheat sheet is. So we have two great cheat sheets on this topic. One is just a general one on enforcing governing documents. And the second one is on levying and collecting fines in a community association. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how do we handle owners who do not comply with the association's documents. So we found that one of the most challenging things of serving on the board, and I just know from my personal experience, one of the most challenging things that I find being a board member in my community is when you have owners who just refuse to comply with the governing documents. And it just creates a lot of stress for the board because usually other neighbors are complaining about the owners that are violating the documents, or maybe their properties are an eyesore, or maybe they're you know, clogging up the streets with cars or changing the paint color of their home without getting approval and painting it a color that never would have been approved if they had asked for approval. These are the types of things that we typically see. So how do associations best handle violations when they occur in your community? 
And so what we found is that most associations start out by just sending a courtesy reminder letter, and that's typically sent by the board or maybe the management company for the association. Some associations do it by putting a door hanger, like a little piece of paper that hangs on the door. Some associations send the violation notices, the courtesy reminder letter violation notices by mail. Some people send them by email. It really just depends on what works best for your community. And a lot of that is determined by how large your community is. In most cases, the courtesy reminder letter is effective. And in most cases, owners will voluntarily comply with the request to correct whatever the violation is on their property. However, like anything in life, there are some people who don't respond to the courtesy reminder letter or refuse to take the action that's requested. And so in those cases, then typically a second violation letter, one worded more seriously with maybe some enforcement type language is in there. And so typically the courtesy violation letter will give them 15 or 30 days to correct whatever the violation is. The second letter, the formal violation letter is gonna be very firm and give a very firm deadline to correct the violation. Now, in some cases, the firm violation letter is going to threaten a fine against the owner for the violation. We're going to talk about fines a little bit more extensively here in a minute. But the formal violation letter is definitely threatening to take this matter to the association's attorney, possibly to file a lawsuit against the association, depending on the nature of the violation, or to fine the owner. Of course, you have to give notice of the violation and an opportunity to be heard before you can levy a reasonable fine against the owner. In addition, there is a state law that requires that all violation letters to an owner must have certain language in it. And this is by statute. So if your association is a smaller association, maybe you don't have a management company, it's important that you're aware that your violation letters need to have this language in it. And all this information is on the cheat sheet that we shared with you. But the language that you must have in your formal violation letter is you have the option to petition for administrative hearing in this matter in the Arizona Department of Real Estate pursuant to ARS 32-2199.01. And then parentheses says this was formally handled by the Department of Fire Building and Life Safety. So it's just kind of a random weird statement that you have to have in that violation letter by law. And honestly, a lot of times the owners, when they contact the association back after receiving that letter, they say, I don't understand why you put that in there. And we have to say it's because the legislature requires that we have that language in there. Okay, so you, we've gone through the initial steps on how to best handle the violation. One thing that I left out that I think is important is some smaller communities may have a very courteous and cordial relationship between members. Like if you have 10 or 30 lots in your association or units in your association. And I don't want to overlook the remedy of making a phone call or knocking on the owner's door to talk about the violation and see what's going on with the owner, why it's not being handled. And if there's anything the association can do to help facilitate getting the violation corrected. So I think it's important that I mention that because in some cases, phone call really can just address the situation. You don't have to get formal with a courtesy reminder letter or a formal violation letter. Okay, so what do we do if the owner continues to blow off the association, which at this point, you know, maybe 
by sending the courtesy reminder letter and the formal violation letter at this point, really, in my experience, probably 80% of the violations are corrected. But then there's a 20% that refuses to correct the violation or just for whatever reason is just ignoring the letters from the association. So what are some things that are more serious remedies that we can do to get the owner to comply? I think the first one we should talk about are fines. Under Arizona law, we have the right to fine an owner for a violation of the CCNRs, the bylaws, or the rules of the association. So if it's written down in the bylaws, the articles, or the CCNRs that an owner has to do something or can't do something, we can fine the owner for a violation of that section. Now, we have to set up the fine correctly under Arizona law. There's a very specific procedure. And the procedure is, first, the fine has to be reasonable. So the amount of the fine is important to carefully consider. Now, levying a $1,000 fine for not putting away your trash can within a certain number of hours after the pickup of trash is probably not going to be considered reasonable. But a $1,000 fence for a health and safety hazard on somebody's property, that is going to be considered something that, in my opinion, would be reasonable. So first, the fine has to be reasonable. Second, like we said, it has to be a violation of the CCNRs, the bylaws, or the rules. And then third, before we can levy the fine, we have to give notice and an opportunity to be heard regarding the violation and the fine. And so really the the process has to be set up in a certain way if you're going to find an owner. A lot of times clients will come to me and say, we just want you to send a letter to this owner telling them that they owe a $300 fine. And really, I can't just do that in one letter because the way that the law is set up, we have to send two letters, basically. The first letter is the notice of the violation. And we outline what the issue is, what the section in the CCNRs that was violated, potentially who witnessed the violation. And then the, we may say that the association is going to fine you for this violation and give the dollar amount and then say, but you have an opportunity to be heard regarding this violation. And that's in the first letter. And the, the opportunity to be heard is, can be done in a number of different ways. You can have a hearing in conjunction with the board meeting where you invite the owner to come and talk with the board. You could ask the owner to write a letter to the board or an email to the board with their comments as an opportunity to be heard. And then after that time that you give them for the opportunity to be heard it expires, then the board sends a second letter with either letting the fine or thanking them for correcting the violation, and, and maybe then you don't find after hearing what they have to say. So really, it's a three-part process before you can levy a fine legally against an owner. And again, this is set up under Arizona law. So you have to give notice to the owner of the violation, an opportunity to be heard, and then we can levy the fine. Or we can choose not to levy the fine after we hear what the homeowner has to say. Or maybe they correct the violation and we decide not to levy the fine. I've been practicing law now for a long time, 25 years. And in the old days, back in the 1990s, we were able to lean on owner's property for unpaid fines. Unfortunately, that law changed many years ago. And now the only way that we can enforce the payment of the fines is by filing a lawsuit against the owner. 
obtaining a judgment against the owner. Typically, this is going to be in justice court because typically the fines are going to be less than $10,000. And then after we get the judgment against the owner for the fines, then we can record that judgment with the county recorder's office and it becomes a judgment lien. And that judgment lien needs to be paid at the time the owner sells their property. Or we can try to enforce payment of the judgment, which is just a piece of paper through garnishment of that owner's wages, their bank accounts, or maybe if they have a tenant in any property that they own, we can garnish the rent of the tenant to pay the judgment. And so really the bottom line on fines would be that you have to set it up correctly with the three-step process, notice, opportunity to be heard, and then levy the fine. And second, in order to legally enforce the payment of these fines, we have to get a judgment against the owner and record that judgment with Superior Court. Some closing remarks on fines would be that fines really are a method to get compliance. An association shouldn't be budgeting. You're doing your budget right now for 2023. You really shouldn't be budgeting. Oh, I think we're going to get $20,000 in fine income in 2023. That's not something that you should be counting on. We use fines as a tool to get compliance. So if you have an owner who is refusing to correct a violation, fining them may be a way to push them to do something because they're starting to realize that the violation not being corrected starts to cost them money. But the reality is that if you have fines that you levy and they're minimal, meaning like less than $500, you got to weigh or balance, do we want to file a lawsuit to collect the $500 in fines? Because it may cost you $1,000 in legal fees, which the court likely will grant, but it doesn't make sense to sue somebody for $500 and then spend $1,000 in legal fees. So typically what we see is Owners that have a large amount of fines, like over $2,000, those are the people that the attorneys are filing a lawsuit against the owner for non-payment of the fines. And remember that you can negotiate on fines. If the owner corrects the violation and is remorseful about the issue, you may want to waive the fines entirely. You may want to waive half of them. It's just a consideration because the goal of fining is to get compliance. Now, just a word of caution is that You know, if you have a habitual offender, you probably don't want to waive the fines because they'll think that they can continue with the bad behavior or whatever the violation is, and that we're always going to waive the fines. There's no incentive for them to comply with the documents in a timely manner. So you may not want to waive it on somebody who's a habitual violator. Uh, One thing I want to just close out fines and talk a little bit about is that management companies often place fines directly on the owner's ledger after the fines have been levied. And it's a way for them to keep track of the fines are owed by the owner and it's now on the ledger so that we don't forget that this owner has fines against them. If the owner goes to sell their property and those fines are on the ledger, in our experience, we found that the association discloses them at the close of escrow. Typically, those fines are paid even though the association may not have a judgment yet. If you're in this situation as an association and you've levied fines against an owner and they're being disclosed at the time of a close of property, close of escrow, that, hey, this lot owes this amount of money in fines, 
If the seller objects to the fines being on the ledger without having a judgment, it's something that the association should very seriously consider waiving and not collecting at the close of escrow. Because remember, the law says that you are required to have a judgment to enforce collections of those fines. And if you don't have that judgment, the owner has a very good argument that they don't have to pay those fines. Okay, let's talk a little bit about another legal remedy. So self-help is another legal remedy that's an important one for us to discuss. So what is self-help? It's typically set up in your CCNRs for your association, and it allows the association to give notice to the owner of the violation, and it allows the association to go in and correct a violation on a lot or unit at the owner's cost. And that only happens if the owner fails to correct the violation in a timely manner after receiving notice that they need to correct this. If your association's documents do have the self-help provision in it, it's a great remedy to go in and clean up a property. Typically, we see self-help with tree trimming, landscaping violations, maintenance violations on somebody's property. It's an effective tool to go in and clean up the property. A couple thoughts on self-help are that typically, so there's a cost to do this, right? And that cost typically is set up in the CCNRs to be passed through to the owner. And so in some cases, it allows the association, if your documents allow this, to lien the property of the owner for this cost. In other circumstances, it just is something that we can get a personal judgment against the owner for this cost. A couple thoughts on this. Sometimes the association will send in a landscaping crew under the self-help provisions and the owner is okay with it because they don't want to do the landscaping and for whatever reason, they're not doing it. And so it turns into this unhealthy situation where the association is going in and cleaning up this owner's property. The owner refuses to pay the money or the cleanup. And at some point, sometimes we see the owner lose the property at a trustee sale and the association doesn't recover any of the self-help costs that they've incurred. So what I typically will tell clients is if you're thinking about doing the self-help option, recognize a few things. Number one, you may not be able to collect the amounts that are owed. Sometimes we go in and do self-help and clean up a lot when we have an owner that's deceased or we have an owner that there's going to be a trustee sale in the future and the property looks horrible and the neighbors are complaining. And so we just want to go in and make it look better. So we stop getting complaints. So self-help is tricky in that manner because we're fronting the costs and there's a possibility that we may not ever recover those costs. Okay. Another thing just kind of important to remember is having some sort of a policy in place on all of these violations, whether it's a fine policy, an enforcement policy, and then communicating to your members, okay, here are our policies if you violate the documents. So we have the right to fine. We have the right to do self-help if that's in your documents. At a certain point, we're going to go the legal route, turn this matter over to the attorney and file a lawsuit. Maybe we go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate. So having that policy in place and it makes your board accountable too so that you don't let violations just linger on for months and months and years. It just sets into place a procedure for how you're going to handle violations uniformly against all owners. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about when are you going to get the attorney involved to help your association navigate the violation? So by now, you might be down to 5% or maybe 10% of your owners haven't complied based upon all the different things that we've done. So we may have done the courtesy reminder notice, then we did the formal violation notice. Maybe we threatened and levied fines. Maybe we threatened self-help or maybe we actually went in and did self-help and now there's some charges with that. So typically the attorney gets involved at the point where the management company or the board is unable to resolve an issue with an owner. And there's a couple of things that we do. It just depends. Every case is different. And so when a file is turned over to our office to handle a violation, we typically ask for photographs and we ask for the history as to what's happened on this file. Are there any special considerations for the owner? Do we know anything about the owner? Are they offsite? Are they an owner or landlord? Is there a tenant in the property? Do they live out of state? Do they only live here part-time? A lot of good information is helpful to me so that I can make a good choice about how we want to proceed. But when the matter is turned over to our firm, we typically will send a first violation letter right away. And in that letter, we're going to continue to threaten fines. We're going to threaten a lawsuit against the owner and let them know how much a lawsuit is going to cost in terms of attorney's fees and costs because that may be something that will be a motivator for them to do whatever they're supposed to do under the documents. Litigation is a last resort from my perspective. Typically what we'll do is we'll send the first violation letter from our firm. And in addition to that, I always pick up the phone and we'll contact the owner directly and try to get some face time with them and talk about the violation and find out where they're coming from and see if we can come to some common ground. And I would say probably eight out of 10 times that works and we get the owner to comply, especially after we explain to them how much it's going to cost in legal fees, in addition to fines and maybe any self-help charges that the association may be charging. I think most owners recognize we don't wanna pay the attorney, we just wanna fix the problem. But in some cases, we're forced to file a lawsuit against the owner. And here's just a process that we follow when we have a violation and we are pursuing the owner through litigation. So basically, like I said before, litigation is going to be a last resort. It's not something that we just pull the trigger and do right away. This is something that is set up really well with documentation of letters, trying to reach the person by phone. And this is our last resort. So basically what we do is we file a lawsuit in Superior Court. We ask the judge for a mandatory permanent injunction compelling the owner to do or not do something. In most cases, the judge is going to rule on this by a default hearing and we will be entitled to our reasonable attorney's fees and costs incurred. In some cases, right after the lawsuit's filed, the owner will contact us or maybe the owner hires an attorney, the attorney contacts us, and we're able to resolve the issue. In some very limited cases, like maybe 1% of the time, the owner doesn't do anything. Or maybe we have to go to the, the phase where they have an attorney and they file an answer and they claim that they don't have to do this or they have some sort of defense as to why they're not doing it, and then we have to litigate the matter. In terms of timeline and costs for lawsuits like this, if it's a type of lawsuit where it's just going to be a default judgment, meaning that the owner never responds, we're probably looking at about 
three to $4,000 in attorney's fees and costs. If this is something that we have to go to a motion for summary judgment and have the court decide as a matter of law, who's the winner in the case, could be as high as ten dollars or $15,000 in legal fees. So lawsuits are expensive. It's something that we want to take care and consideration before we file the lawsuit. Typically, I'll ask to meet with the board and talk about the costs and the risks of litigation and how long it's going to take so that the board goes into the lawsuit understanding what the procedures are and how much it's going to cost. Again, the attorney's fees are, reasonable attorney's fees are regularly awarded in these type of cases. These are not difficult cases. This is a simple breach of contract case. And we just bring the evidence to the judge and show them the, the contract, which is the CCNRs. And it's a pretty easy case for the court to rule in the association's favor. In some cases, we have owners that we file a lawsuit against them. They never respond. They don't clean up their lot. And then we get to the stage where, okay, now we have a court order telling the owner to do something and the owner still won't do it. In those cases, the remedy that we have is we go back to the court and we ask for the court to have an order to show cause hearing, whereby the court demands that the owner comes to court and basically tells the owner, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you'll be held in contempt of court and you could potentially go to jail. But I have unfortunately seen that happen a few times in cases over the past 25 years. If we file a lawsuit and get a judgment against the owner, they will have to comply. There's no way around it, basically. And that's basically just the overview of the most serious remedy, which would be going to Superior Court and getting an injunction against the owner, compelling them to do um, something. There's also another remedy that I want to mention, and that is going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate. We're going to be sharing with you the Homeowners Association dispute process with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. Several years ago, gosh, probably now, maybe five or six years ago, the Arizona legislature passed a law, and this law allows owners or associations to have their disputes regarding their association heard by the Arizona Department of Real Estate's administrative law arm. And some associations and mostly owners use this department to have complaints heard. The reason why associations don't typically go to the ADRE, there's an Department of Real Estate, and file complaints or petitions against their residents is because the ADRE does not authorize or award attorney's fees. And so basically, it doesn't make sense for the board to go to the ADRE because they have to have an attorney representing them. By law, all nonprofit corporations do have to have an attorney in any court proceedings. And so it wouldn't make sense because the association would have to hire the attorney and then just pay out of pocket and not have any reimbursement from the owner for going to an administrative law hearing on a dispute between an owner and the association. Now, owners love this section of the Department of Real Estate because that works in their favor. For a small filing fee of $500 per claim, Owners can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a petition against an association for one issue, it's $500 per issue. So if they want it three, then it's gonna be $1,500. And basically what happens is the Arizona Department of Real Estate refers the matter to the Arizona Office of Administrative Hearing. 
And there's a hearing on the petition, usually within three or four months of the petition being filed. And the administrative law judge will make a ruling after the hearing. So there are some benefits of going to the ADRE, and that would be that it's relatively fast. You usually can have an administrative law judge make a ruling on this within four or five months. And it's relatively inexpensive for owners, $500 per issue heard. And so there are some benefits to that. I can think of maybe one or two times that the association has used the ADRE to hear complaints. Most of the time, 99.99999% of the time, this is an avenue for homeowners to use if they're upset with their association. And the risk is that they have to pay the $500 filing fee. If they win, the other side has to pay that fee. If they lose, they obviously will just eat that cost. If you want more information on this process, you can go to the website that our office is going to be sharing with you um, on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And they'll give you some more information on how to submit a petition, the forms that you use. And I think you can actually submit the petition online now, too, and pay the fee online. Okay, so basically, I think we covered everything in terms of our different enforcement things, just as a quick summary of everything. When you have a violation, it's really important that you document all of the evidence, so take photographs, have a log as to who's complaining about the violation, what exactly the violation is, who went out to observe the violation, or maybe if it's a homeowner complaining about it, when they observed it, because we need all that important information as we progress through the different steps. And the different steps, like I said, are going to be a courtesy violation letter, a more formal violation letter, fines, self-help escalating the matter to the attorney for the association, having the attorney send a letter, a lawsuit, potentially an injunction issued against the owner, compelling them to do something or not to do something. And then, of course, having the Arizona Department of Real Estate as a potential venue to hear disputes between the owners and associations as something just separate that's out there that you need to be aware of. A couple things in closing on enforcement actions, our firm is offering right now, if you have a pickle enforcement, so one that's really difficult for you that you haven't been able to figure out for your association, we're happy to do a free 10-minute consultation on that particular issue and give you our best advice on how to handle it. So if anybody is in that situation that's listening in today, and gosh, we have a lot of people listening in today, we have 91 people here on Zoom and many more on Facebook, so that's great. Okay, we just launched a new poll, so I wanna make sure as we kind of transition over to our most common violation issues that I'm asking that you help me with this answer. So I get feedback from you. What enforcement issue does your association struggle with the most? So we put the most common ones up there, and I can see that the results are coming in. I also don't want you to forget to ask questions. You can do that through the comment section on Facebook Live or through the chat box on Zoom. Okay, so one of the first um, things that we're going to talk about here in a second, I'm just kind of waiting for the poll results to come in, is what are the most common violations that we see? So number one, I think, is short-term rental issues. Parking problems is another really common one. Not submitting architectural applications, not maintaining property and then collection of delinquent assessments seem to be the ones right now that are the most common ones. 
Okay, so let's go look at our poll here. What enforcement issues does your association struggle with the most? So we have 12% of you are having trouble with short-term rentals. 26% of you are having trouble with parking. 37% are on maintenance of property. And then 25% are on making changes to property without getting architectural approval. So what I'm going to try to do is spend a little bit of time on the ones that the group has the most serious issues with. Let's start out with rental properties. And I'm surprised that only 12% of you have issues with that. But we have a great cheat sheet that we're going to be sharing with you called How to Effectively Work with Rental Properties. And that contains some great nuggets of advice to help you as you navigate working with rental properties. A couple quick pointers on rental properties. Remember that the owner is responsible for the behavior of the tenant. So as you're working with a rental property, if you have a bad tenant, the best way to get compliance is to contact the owner and make it hurt in the owner's pocket. So we've been really effective in getting landlord owners to either evict tenants or get the tenants to comply with the documents by once the files turned over to our firm, I contact the landlord owner by phone or by email and ask for a phone to call with them. And I just explained to them, listen, you're responsible for the behavior of your tenant and this is what your tenant is doing. And ultimately this is gonna cost you a fortune because we're gonna pursue this in a court of law and we're gonna fine you. And it would be much smarter for you just to comply because this tenant is gonna end up costing you way more money than you're getting in rental income. And if you set up that call, I basically have a 100% success rate on that because I just lay it out for the landlord and you have to think like a landlord. They're operating this property to make money. It's a business for them, basically. And once the business starts losing money, they've got to pivot and change course. And that pivot is to get rid of the tenant or to get the tenant to comply. And that is a very effective way to get the landlord owner to comply. A couple of quick reminders. Associations can only ask for certain information from landlords regarding their tenants or their um, leases. And so basically, this is all set up under the law. So we can only ask for the name and contact information for adults who are occupying the unit, the time period of the lease, including the beginning and ending dates of the tenancy, and then a description and license plate number of the tenant's vehicles. There's a fourth category. If you're a 55 and over community or an age-restricted community, the owner's agent or the tenant must provide the association or a manager of the association with a government-issued identification with a photograph to show that tenant meets the minimum age restriction. It might be like 55 and over for the community. At least one occupant would have to be 55 or over. The association can charge a fee of no more than $25 to provide this information to set up the new tenancy in the association's books. That fee can be charged for any new tenant, including any new short-term tenant that might be renting for a short-term period, but it cannot be charged if the same tenant renews an existing lease. We have a great blog that I'm going to share with you on vacation rentals and short-term rentals. And I think it will be really helpful if you're having any problems with short-term rentals right now in your community. Remember, it's the same game plan on short-term rentals or even really if you have long-term rental in your own association that's a bad rental. 
basically you want to look to the new legislation that was signed into law in July and what became the law effectively on September 24th. Basically, you want to check in with your city to see if they have any special requirements for short-term rentals. They may have ordinances in place where if you complain about a short-term rental that they will investigate it. They may have set up a whole procedure for permitting of the short-term rental and any complaints regarding that permitted short-term rental will go on that owner's file and it's possible that the permit will not be renewed in the future. And so you definitely want to check in with your city, town, or municipality to see if they have implemented any special short-term rental restrictions. But again, on short-term rentals, basically the same thing. We contact the owner. We explain to the owner how much this is going to cost in terms of legal fees and fines. And we have good documented evidence to show the landlord owner about all the violations and we try to get the owner to understand that, hey, this tenant is costing you more money than you're making. And that will hopefully either get the landlord to evict the, the short-term tenant or not rent to them in the future or try to find better short-term tenants, maybe not transient tenants, and maybe go with a longer-term rental in your community. Okay, so I do want to encourage you, just as a closing remark on this, make sure you're checking out the new legislation that was just signed into law. We shared our cheat sheet with you on this about short-term rentals. I think that contains some really great information for you about the new legislation and how you might be able to work and partner with your city, county, municipality to best manage bad short-term rentals. Okay, another problem, which we saw 26% of you here on this call today said that, hey, we have parking problems in our community. So when I'm looking at a parking issue for a community, what are some things that I look at? Number one, I check the documents for the association. What do they say about parking? We have to look at the exact language of the documents and look to see if what the owner is doing or the tenant is doing is violating the exact language. Most common parking issues we see are overnight on-street parking, bringing in RVs, campers, boats, trailers, commercial vehicles. These are all very common violations. We have to determine who's going to enforce this and who's going to give us the evidence that they're violating it. Is it going to be neighbors reporting it? Is it going to be a security patrol? Is it going to be the manager? And then how are we going to enforce it? Are we going to send letters? Are we going to find the owner? Towing is a controversial remedy. It needs to be in the CCNRs. Same thing with booting a vehicle that's parked in violation of your documents. The right to do that needs to be in your CCNRs. So make sure that if you're engaging in towing or booting the vehicles that you have the right to do that listed in your CCNRs. Some other things that we do are sticky stickers on a driver's window. Lawsuits are another thing if we've got a habitual offender. Parking problems are messy. It's difficult to prove whose vehicle it is and if that ever happens to you. We have our process server can look up license plate numbers so we can determine who owns the vehicle and then try to trace it to the where are they going in your community. But oftentimes the neighbors see the person park the car and then see the person walk into the lot. So we, we already know which owner is responsible for the person that's parking in violation of the documents. But again, same analysis on parking problems. We go through the process of violation letters, escalate it to the attorney, and then the last resort would be to go to 
Superior Court and file a lawsuit against the owner for the tenant's behavior or the owner's behavior in parking in violation of your association's documents. Another very common violation is going to be not maintaining property or also failing to submit architectural applications. It looks like we had 25% of you say it's a big problem in your community. We have a lot of cases right now where owners make a change to their property without getting approval. And so failing to obtain architectural approval, the most common things we see are maybe they repaint their house, they put up a new garage door, they change out their windows, they add a bonus room, they change their landscaping, they put in an RV gate or a golf cart concrete pad, they add a shed to their property. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people do without getting approval. So first thing I would say would be check your documents to make sure that what the owner changed does in fact require architectural approval. The best way to handle is to contact the owner and ask the owner to submit the architectural application after the fact. And then the board needs to review the application once they submit it. Maybe it's something that the board will approve. Maybe it's not. If they don't approve it, the board may have to require the owner to return their property to its original condition. And a common question I get is, okay, if the owner already added a a concrete pad for golf cart parking. And we would not have allowed that if they had asked for permission before they did it. Does that mean we have to allow it after the fact because they spent the money and burned it? And do we have to allow it because of that? And no, not necessarily. When you get into one of these sticky situations, it's really a good idea for you to talk to your legal counsel and talk it through with them in terms of what is the violation Did they submit an architectural application? Did we give it a fair review? And if it's a violation and you're not going to allow it, then maybe you need to get the attorney involved to send a violation letter on it. Again, same legal remedies that we would have for the other violations, sending letters, fining, possibly self-help, and an injunctive relief lawsuit. Okay, failing to maintain property. This is a big one. We had 37% of you have told us that this is a big issue for your community. So how do we handle failing to maintain the property? Make sure that you're doing regular inspections because you won't let properties fall into disrepair if you're doing a regular inspection every month at your community. Sending out the letters when you see properties that are not in good condition, using the self-help option that we talked about, giving notice and then going in and cleaning up the property or even threatening to do that is a good way to get people to comply. Finding the owner, considering a lawsuit, having really good documentation regarding the condition of the property with pictures for every violation visit that you have when you're going out there to do an inspection, taking pictures so we can see what has been corrected or has not been corrected. If you find out that this is a difficult situation with an owner, like maybe they have a health issue or maybe there's been a recent death in the family, Being creative in finding ways to help is a really great solution too. So there are organizations throughout the Valley that will send in a crew to clean things up. Maybe the neighbors can volunteer to help this owner during this difficult time. So it's really important to have good communication with the owner to find out what's going on. Okay, our last topic that we're going to talk about is kind of another very large enforcement issue, and that is collection of delinquent assessments. And we're going to be doing a quick poll here, and we'll be sharing that with you on your screen here in a minute. 
But the poll is, has your association noticed an increase in the past six months of delinquent owners? Have you seen an uptick in the number of owners who aren't paying their assessments? Okay, we're gonna be talking about this topic pretty quickly, but we have a, a deep dive a handout for you. And it's called Our Firm's Secrets to Effective Collection of Delinquent Assessments. And then what are the legal remedies that you have if you're trying to collect unpaid assessments from an owner? Okay, so we're getting our poll results back and we're seeing that 29% of you who are on the call here today are starting to see an increase in the number of delinquent owners in your community. And I think our firm is also seeing an uptick in the number of delinquent owners. We've kind of been scratching our head wondering since 2020 when the pandemic initially started, there's so much money being pumped into our economy from the government. We actually saw more owners paying their past due assessments to the association. But most recently, with the inflation rate increasing and um, you know, the government not really pumping any more good money into the economy, we're starting to see things go back to pre pandemic delinquency levels. And so it's important for associations just to keep an eye on your delinquency list in your community. So every month at your board meeting, your board should be looking at the delinquency list and having a policy in terms of, okay, if an owner is 60 or 90 days past due on a payment of assessments to the association, your association should be leaning the property, maybe one that's 30 days past due, we send a letter, or it's 60 to 90 days past due, they're leaning the property, and then maybe at 120 days, it's sent to the attorney to take legal action. So when a file is turned over to our firm to collect money against an owner, basically what we do is we do a full 360 credit review of that owner. And we determine whether they're collectible. We determine are they underwater on the property? Do they owe more on the mortgage or deed of trust and the property's worth? What does their credit card debt look like? Is the bank that they have the loan with, are they foreclosing on them too? Are they in bankruptcy? Do they have a job? Is the job information current? Are they driving fancy cars? Are they taking vacations? Are they documenting all this on social media? These are all important factors to take into consideration in terms of how we're going to collect the debt. And basically, we have a couple different remedies. We typically will start out by sending a demand letter, which outlines the fact that we have the right to foreclose on the assessment lien if they don't pay their assessments. There are some restrictions under state law. We can only foreclose against an owner once the assessment is one year delinquent, where they owe $1,200 in assessments only. So that's like the benchmark. We can't foreclose until it gets to that amount. But foreclosure is a, a great remedy because right now, most properties in Arizona are there is equity in the properties. And if we threaten to foreclose, people are going to realize, hey, I maybe owe 200000 on my property and the property is worth 500000 That means there's a lot of equity, $300,000 of equity in the property, and they're not going to walk away from that. So if we threaten foreclosure, we actually foreclose. In those situations, we're guaranteed to get the money back because either the owner is going to wake up and pay or we're going to have a sheriff sale and a third-party investor is going to come in and see what a great deal this is and how much equity there is and pay the association in full and buy the property at a sheriff sale. 
So foreclosure is, is a, a good option right now. Their economy being as state it is. There's also a second remedy that we can go and get a personal judgment against the owner in justice court. And with that judgment, we can garnish their bank account, their wages, or if they're a landlord, we can garnish their rent. It's interesting. Over the past 25 years, I've seen different cycles where, especially based upon how the economy is doing. So when the economy is not doing well, getting a personal judgment is usually the better option because the owners don't have as much equity in the property. And oftentimes we will just get the justice court judgment and then garnish their wages if they're working. But the past four or five years, there has been so much equity by these owners and their property that it's kind of a no-brainer to us that we should just threaten foreclosure or foreclose because we're going to get paid. And it's a little bit easier than going the justice court route where we actually have to get the judgment and then go after them and garnish 25% of every paycheck that they make. And so there are legal remedies. If you have owners that aren't paying, it's really important that you get on top of that debt early. Do not wait for that debt to be a year behind to turn it over to the attorney. You want to get that to the attorney once the debt is somewhere between four and six months behind. And keep an eye on that. Every month you should be looking as a board member at the delinquency list, at the violations list for your community and determining, okay, what's the next step here? For us to get compliance to either find the owner to pay or for the owner to bring their lot into compliance. Okay, we have one last poll question before we go into the questions that we have today. We have 18 questions right now, and it looks like more are rolling in as we're just rounding out our hour of the presentation. Our last poll question for today is regarding virtual learning, and we're starting to plan our classes for 2023. And since the pandemic started in March or April of 2020, we have taught many classes. I'm guessing probably at least 60 classes virtually. And we've had a significantly larger turnout of attendees when we teach the classes virtually. But there are some people that are still itching to meet in person. And so we think it's important that we ask this question. As we start to plan our 2023 classes, do you prefer having more virtual or would you prefer to have in-person? So that was our poll question number five. And so the question is, do you like the flexibility of virtual classes or would you prefer to meet in person? Okay, so you've spoken. The results are back. 90% of you prefer having virtual classes, 8% prefer to do in-person classes, and 2% are unsure. So that's great feedback for us as we continue to plan our curriculums for our Neighborhood Services Virtual HRA Academy in 2023. I know it's hard not seeing you in person. I miss not having that personal in-person contact, but I do feel like I'm able to answer more questions and to get through the materials and to provide written things to you in such an easier format when we do teach it virtually. So I have to admit that I also do prefer doing virtually because I think I reach more people and I'm helping more people and getting more information out there. So thanks everybody for participating. We're gonna go right into our questions now. The first question is, what if your HOA does not want to levy monetary fines? So I don't know if you're on your board or if you are a homeowner and maybe you're upset about a neighbor, but really it's up to your association's board. It's their choice as to how they want to handle violations. 
What I can tell you from experience is it's a great remedy. As long as you follow the law and set it up correctly, it's a great remedy to get owners to bring their lot into compliance. If the HOA chooses not to do it, it's basically the board's decision. On the board, think about running for the board yourself. Ask your board, why aren't you doing it? Maybe show them this presentation so that they can see the benefits of using fines to get compliance. Okay, the second question is requiring homeowners to park in their garages enforceable if the ruling is in the CCNRs? So short answer would be yes. If owners are required to park their vehicles in the garage and it's in your CCNR saying that, yes, that is enforceable. A very common question that I get is, what if they have like a workbench in there and they do all kinds of projects in their garage or they have a lot of storage in their garage and they don't have room to park their cars? That's their problem. They need to follow the CCNRs and just because they're using their garage as a handyman station or a storage room doesn't give them a free pass to violate the other parking restrictions in the association's documents. Okay, question number three. During an organizational meeting, should any business be conducted? Are members allowed to watch the organizational meeting? By organizational meeting, the organizational meeting held after the annual meeting where directors are elected and after the annual meeting, the board will meet in the organizational meeting to elect officers. Okay, this is a gray area. Some associations documents will specify when the organizational meeting takes place and it's very clear. Most don't. So here's just kind of what typically happens. First of all, I would recommend that if you're having an organizational meeting after your annual meeting to elect officers or to appoint officers to your positions, the notice of that should be included with the notice of the annual meeting. So typically you're going to say the annual meeting, we're going to be electing directors. Immediately following the annual meeting, we are going to have a short organizational meeting of the new board, and the new board will determine among themselves the officer positions. And I personally feel that the homeowners, if they want to stay and, and listen to that, they should be allowed to stay and listen. This is not an executive session topic. What typically happens, so in my experiences, you have the annual meeting, there's a lot of people are there, there's some commotion because the annual meeting ends and then the board says, okay, everybody come over here and let's decide quickly who's going to be the officers for next year. And it's not real formal. It's you know, basically they just decide among themselves and the homeowners aren't really sitting there listening in. And so if you want your association to be more formal, ask them to say at the end of the annual meeting, we're going to briefly adjourn for a few minutes to regroup. And then we're going to go right into our first board meeting after the annual meeting to appoint officers for our community. And you're welcome to stay and listen, but you're also welcome to go home if you're ready to go home after the annual meeting. And should any business, any other business be conducted? If you are planning to conduct any other business, so the typical business would be the appointment of officers. If you're going to talk about anything else, the notice of the meeting should specify what specifically you're going to be discussing at that organizational meeting in addition to appointing the directors. Okay, question number four. One of our HOA residents passed away and her children put the home up for sale. 
The property has not been sold yet, but is presently in arrears for its monthly assessments. Does the management company or the HOA begin the process of collecting the amount due, or should we wait until the time of sale? That's a, a tough question. I guess one thing that I would look at is I would evaluate, does the owner own the property free and clear? Or is there a deed of trust or mortgage on there? And what is that debt ratio to the value of the property? If the owner owns it free and clear and the property is priced to sell, I probably would just lien the property to ensure that the lien is picked up by the title company when the property enters escrow and maybe wait for three months and not do anything. But if the property is not priced to sell or gets overpriced, then you may want to consider foreclosing on the estate of the decedent. It really is just going to depend on why aren't they paying it? If it's a money thing, can you communicate with them and say, okay, you recognize that assessments haven't been paid here for 12 months and this is going to need to be paid at the time of the close of escrow. And just open up the lines of communication with the family if you can. Obviously, if they've got it priced way too high and you're at the foreclosure threshold and they're not being reasonable, then you may have to consider doing a foreclosure proceeding. And it just really depends on a number of different variables. But you should be able to collect that money at the time of the closing on the property. And that would be a really effective way to get the money. You should put the lien on there, though, to protect yourself. Okay, next question is number five. Our complex is owner-occupied. No rentals are permitted. A property in our complex was sold. We learned that the management company posted on HomeWise that rentals were allowed. A board member called the listing agent when the first sale sign went up and told her no rentals are allowed. The buyer planned on using the property as a rental. The management company says it was the buyer's responsibility to have read the CCNRs. What are our options now? Okay, definitely it sounds like there was a mistake by the management company. I don't think that a posting on HomeWise, which I'm guessing is like maybe where the disclosure information about the association is posted, it doesn't override the CCNRs. If the CCNRs say no rentals, that is the deciding factor. Now, it's a possibility that the buyer may sue the association for detrimental reliance on what was posted on HomeWise. I hope not. This is a sticky situation. It was definitely a mistake. I don't know what your management agreement says with the management company, but if you have an indemnification provision where the management makes a mistake like this, they may have to defend you in a lawsuit to pay for your defense costs in a lawsuit. If you're named as a defendant in a lawsuit by this buyer, I do ultimately think the association wins, but it, it could be sticky and there may be a lawsuit, but I wouldn't budge. I would not allow this person to rent their property because the CCNRs are controlling here. Okay, next question is from an owner. How do you deal with a board who will not follow your governing documents? Example, passing an amendment with a majority of a quorum, 30% versus a majority of all homeowners entitled to vote at a meeting. Second example, the board was legally removed in person pursuant to our bylaws and they won't step down and the board president worked for the property management company and they won't enforce the removal. Okay, a couple things are important. First of all, in Arizona, we have a very specific board removal 
provision in the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. So you want to make sure that if this is an Arizona association, that you are following what Arizona law says on removal of directors and not what bylaws say, because that's going to be controlling what Arizona law says. So just generally speaking, if you have a board that's not following governing documents, document in writing so that there's a paper trail what they're doing wrong and ask them to change it. Consider running for your board. Consider moving, right? Consider suing your association. Consider going to the Arizona Department of Real Estate to file a petition against your board and having an administrative law judge look at the problems and rule in favor of the homeowner against the association. These are all different options that you have. Question number seven, if an owner uses a property management company to oversee their rental, do we still communicate with the owner and not the property management company for violations? This is a good question. Thank you for asking that. Okay, so if the owner puts in writing that we're supposed to be communicating with the property management company, of course, then we, by law, have to communicate with the property management company. It doesn't mean, however, that we can't do a CC to the owner. And why is this important? It's important because sometimes the management company isn't doing their job and the owner doesn't even know it because the owner's delegated everything to the management company to handle. And so if the owner says, I want the management company to be our primary contact for the HOA or condo, that's fine. But I also would still continue to CC the owner on any violations or any delinquencies pertaining to the association. Question number eight, we have a homeowner that needs to rent their home due to his wife being diagnosed with the disease or she can no longer walk up the stairs. Rentals are allowed prior to 2006 for six months. They purchased in 2018, therefore they're not allowed to rent. Under the CCNRs, it says that the board may make exceptions under certain medical conditions, death and financial reasons. This is definitely a medical condition. However, the majority of the board voted to not allow them to rent. Any suggestions for the owner to allow them to rent? Would the Americans with Disabilities Act apply in this case? Okay, so this is a tough question. I guess suggestions for the owner is selling the property, something they may wanna do because it's obviously not going to work with somebody who cannot walk up the stairs anymore as an owner, that's an option. Another option would be, I do not think the ADA applies in this case. The Americans with Disabilities Act is only going to apply if this is a place of public accommodation or if your association has a place of public accommodation. I didn't know facts that support that. And I'll say that's pretty rare for associations. But what might apply is the Fair Housing Act. And you could say that this person has a disability as defined under the Fair Housing Act, a handicap, and ask for a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Housing Act to rent the property. The problem here is that there's another viable alternative, and that would be to sell it. I'm not sure you win on that, but you might be able to argue that. And also, since the board can make exceptions, they have a backdoor on this. Of course, if they want to, they can allow an exception. Maybe you could negotiate a deal with the board where they give an exception for one year, and then at the end of one year, you agree to sell the property. Maybe look for some creative solutions on that. Okay, question number nine. 
we have an owner that works in a restaurant kitchen and when coming and going from the elevator to his door, he tracks whatever is on his shoes from the kitchen, such as grease, and it leaves dark streaks. It is obvious that he is the culprit, but refuses to take any remedial action to mitigate the damage to the common area. What can the HOA do to enforce rules to not damage common property? Okay, you're gonna to have to prove that this in fact is the owner that's causing damage. Prove it meaning that you're gonna to have to have evidence, direct evidence that he's doing this. You're gonna to have to catch this person, obviously have a witness seeing that they're the ones that are causing the damage to the carpeting. In terms of your CCNRs, typically there's a provision in there that allows you to charge the owner for any costs that are due to their damaging the common areas. So check your documents to see if you have that in there. And then you may wanna get your attorney involved because it sounds like this owner is gonna be difficult and it's not gonna accept responsibility for it, but fines and cleaning up the carpeting and charging them for the cost of cleaning up the carpeting are definitely an option. Okay, next question, number 10. If an owner won't pay a fine, can it be turned over to a collection agency? Yes, but remember what we talked about with fines, you really have to have the judgment, having the judge order that the fine needs to be paid to the association by the owner in order for it to be legally collectible. So I don't know if you have that judgment again yet. If so, then the collection agency certainly has the right to collect on it. If you don't have the judgment yet, the collection agency may be leery of sending a demand letter on that without the judgment. Question number 11. We have a resident that we have been dealing with for four years and the legal fees have added up to over $20,000. We've already excused the fines that did not cost the HOA money. The owner took us to court. A judge known not to favor HOAs heard the case and ruled against us to the tune of $14,000. These are hard expenses that the board will now have to pay out of the budget. When should an HOA just give up and not escalate or pursue a resident? These are tough questions. Okay, so you had a resident that I don't know if it was unpaid assessments or violations or what you were pursuing this resident for in court, but you had over $20,000 in legal fees. It sounds like this has been ongoing for a long time. One thing that I noted is that you already excused the fines. And in a case like this, you may not want to excuse the fines because the fines money could have been a way for you to recover some of those attorney's fees that were lowered. Another thought that comes to mind is there are times where judges don't rule in favor of associations, or maybe the judge feels that it's too much of a burden for the owner to pay the large amount of attorney's fees, or maybe the owner is repentant and the judge may be less likely to make them pay the full amount of the attorney's fees too. Litigation is unpredictable at times. And 90% of the time we get 100% of the fees that we ask for, attorney's fees and costs, but there are some times where we get a ruling from a court that we don't understand why they lowered it. It does happen. Recognize though that when you pursue an owner for a violation, you may not have this owner continue to violate the documents going forward. So there might be a benefit that since you filed the lawsuit, you're going to get compliance from this owner going forward. 
And unfortunately, sometimes there are expenses. These are business expenses that your board has. And sometimes you do have to just write them off. Maybe in the future, if you're going to have to go to that same court, you may want to be mindful of, okay, that judge likes to lower the attorney's fees. So we may not want to take cases to that court. We may want to go to superior court or a different court so that we you know, don't go in front of that judge. And talk about it with your attorney because your attorney should have some good advice on why the fees were reduced and what would be a good strategy going forward if you have another owner in a similar situation. Okay, question number 12. If an owner did not allow a vendor to repair outside of condo and HOA incurred $500 for the delay from the vendor, which owner was advised, can this amount be allowed to be passed on to the homeowner? Hmm, I've seen this happen before where like an owner doesn't want painting done or something. If you advise the owner, was there an agreement that the owner agreed that, okay, fine, I'll pay that $500. If they did agree to it, that would be better. This is a tough call because in order to collect money from somebody, we have to have some sort of an agreement. Is it in the contract or was there a verbal agreement? Without knowing more, it may cost you more money to try to fight about this with the owner. I don't know. You'd have to just see. You could try to add it to their account and see what happens first. And then if they really put up a stink, then maybe talk with your legal counsel in terms of what your legal rights are. Okay, how to convince the board of the importance of signing a code of conduct. I have a great cheat sheet on this and you're welcome to take a look at that. It's a good idea. I usually don't bring out the code of conduct unless the association has a very high level of dysfunction. So it's not really something that I hand out as a matter of course to every association. But remember that if you are having problems with board members not living up to their responsibilities to the corporation, Having a code of conduct and introducing it to your board is a great idea. And really, you just need a majority of the board to approve it, and then it applies to everybody on the board. And it's just a good reminder of the responsibilities you have serving on the board. And our cheat sheet that we have on this has some great information, and I hope you'll take a look at it. Okay, the next question. Do we need to have the statutory language in all violation notices that they may file an appeal with the real estate division? Or can the appeal just be with the board? It's my opinion to be safe, have that language in all of your violation notices to comply with the statute. Okay, next question, number 15. And it looks like we have 23 total questions. So we're moving right along here. Next question is from an owner. I recently attended a class on the grievance process with the ADRE. It is my understanding that the ADRE has no power to enforce a judgment rendered by an administrative law judge. What do I do with a judgment rendered in my favor? Present it to the board? Yes. What you should do is if you went to the ADRE and prevailed against the association, they should have received a copy of it. But you could also send a copy of it to the board. And if they don't do what they're supposed to do under the judgment, you may be able to go back to the ADRE and have a, a hearing to find out why and just try to get back in front of the judge. Or you may want to contact the board and say that you want to have a meeting with them. You may want to get your own attorney to send a letter, making sure that they comply with the ADRE ruling. Honestly, one of the problems with the Arizona Department of Real Estate is that those rulings don't have a lot of teeth. But if one of my clients received an adverse
published ruling from the ADRE and it ordered basically or made a statement that the association did something wrong, I would advise them that they correct their actions. Because my experience with the administrative law judges with the ADRE has been very positive. They are very intelligent and well-versed on Arizona law pertaining to HOAs and condos. And of course, the association had the right to appeal it if they didn't like the decision and they need to abide by what that judge says, in my opinion. Question 16, CCNRs prohibit RVs visible from neighboring property and common areas. Owner moved in and has a Class B camper van that they park in the driveway. By FEMA definition of an RV, it is an RV. It looks like a large, long, and tall van. To be fair, should the board bring this to their attention, letting them know it needs to be garaged to remain on site? If it's classified as an RV, yes, I think that is the appropriate action for the board to contact them and ask them either to not park it in an area that is visible from neighboring property or from common areas or to park it in the garage. Question 17. Do Airbnb guests come under the $25 tenant fee? Yes, they do. For short-term rental guests, longer-term leases, any lease, whether it's short-term or long-term, have that $25 tenant fee, and it needs to be paid for each new tenancy, whether it's short or long. Okay, question 18. Our HOA is in the city limits. We were told by the city that the HOA cannot have rules in the CCNRs as it is a public street. Is this correct? I don't know enough about your association to weigh in on this. So I don't know when your association was created because there is a law that talks about if your association was created after a certain date that if the streets are dedicated to the public, the association cannot have parking restrictions on those streets that are dedicated to the public. I don't know what your CCNRs say about on-street parking, so it's really difficult for me to answer this question. What I would do is I would bring all that information to your association's legal counsel and talk through when your association's CCNRs are recorded and whether or not that law applies to you or does not apply to you. Question number 19, we have a homeowner that put up a chain link fence on part of their property. Our CCNRs state that any fences or wall must be done with masonry. There was a bush shielding the fence, but just recently came down and was noticed. What can the HOA do about this? I don't know how long the chain link fence has been on their property. So if that violation has existed, even though it may have been covered up by a bush previously, that's an important fact that I would need to know. If that chain link fence has been there for more than three years, it may be really difficult to enforce this. So what I would recommend here is contact the owner and find out what's going on. When did they put up the chain link fence? Why was the bush removed recently? If it's been there for more than three years, meaning the chain link fence, maybe you can try to work something out with the owner that they install a new bush so that we don't see it but they may be allowed to have it because it's been there for such a long time period without any action taken by the board, even though the bush may have been shielding it, we couldn't see it. Next question, is the current Arizona homestead exemption $250,000? What are the exceptions? Okay, great. My office is amazing. They already put the statute right here on my screen for me. So ARS 33-1101 talks about the homestead exemption. 
it was increased maybe last year or the year before by our legislature, and it is $250,000. And it says basically the homestead exemption allows them to protect, it says any person 18 years of age or older, married or single, who resides within the state may hold as a homestead exempt from execution and forced sale, not exceeding $250,000 in value. And that would be for their, they have to reside in the property. So it could be in any planned community where they reside in that property or any condo where that person resides. So if it's a rental property, they would not be able to claim the homestead exemption. Now, remember though, that the homestead exemption, there's a specific exception that the HOA foreclosure lien is exempt from that particular provision. So if we're foreclosing on an owner in a planned community or condominium, they cannot claim that homestead exemption. Okay, question number 21. We have a flipper, meaning like a house flipper, I'm guessing, who has a house closing on Thursday. The family moving in has three residents under the 45-year-old rule. In fact, two are small children. The flipper said that our community would allow the family. We are a 55 plus community. The title company is going ahead with the closing. What are our options? Okay, first of all, I would make sure that you notify the realtor, the seller, and the buyer in writing that this is a 55 and over community and give them the sections in the CCNRs. And I would do this immediately in writing. Give them the sections in the CCNRs that are going to apply to the situation. And let them know that if they move in and violate these sections, that the association will take legal action against them. We're providing them notice of these sections at this time. And that's the best you can do. So the title company, the realtors, the buyer and the seller, all that information about the CCNRs and that your 55 and over community should be provided to all those parties. If they proceed forward and the underage residents are residing in the community, you just need to turn it over to your legal counsel and have them pursue them for this violation. Question number 22, our CCNRs say we are not allowed to run a business out of our home. One home was turned into a group home or a halfway house. They have a business license in place to operate. Can the halfway house be forced to close? So under the Fair Housing Act, group homes for the disabled, for the elderly, and for certain classes of people. And I don't know if a halfway house is going to qualify, but sometimes recovering addicts, that is something that is covered under the Fair Housing Act. I need to know more about what the group home is for, but it's very likely that is allowable under the Fair Housing Act and the association will have to allow this group home to operate in your community. You want to do is get more information from the city regarding the business license that they have, and then take that information to your attorney and talk about what their legal options are. Okay, our last question for today. Our board member emails between each other public record, or I'm guessing like association records. And so it depends. Are two board members communicating? Is that considered a book and record of the association? If it's less than a quorum, probably not. So if, if two is less than a quorum of board members, it's probably not something that is going to be a record of the association. Really, again, board members shouldn't be communicating by email though because we don't want to violate the open meeting law. All decisions of the board should be done at an open 
coordinating, not by email, unless there's some sort of an emergency that dictates, you know, a response by email. So the question is, though, are board members' emails between each other? So I don't know, maybe if it's more than a quorum or more, yes, I do feel that would be considered a book and record of the association. And again, I'm going to caution you about violating the open meeting law. Okay, we had one late entry question and my superstar office got it in for us to take a look at. So this will be the last question. If a resident has late dues fees, but when they pay HOA dues, they don't include late fees. Instead, they write in the memo part of the check that the extra amount is for one or two months of advance dues owed. Can we pay off this resident's late fees from the HOA dues paid in? If they have a memo on the check dictating or directing how the money needs to be paid, you have to follow that. And so you cannot put that towards the late fees. However, you can pursue the owner for the late fees. So you may want to potentially file a lien if there are a lot of late fees that have been accumulating or have the matter go to the attorney. But the way that they're doing the check with the memo and specifying how the money should be applied, you have to apply it that way, unfortunately. And that person's a savvy person that you're dealing with. So you may want to get your attorney involved because it's clear to me that they know what they're doing. They're trying to get around paying the late fees. Okay, so we made it through the class. We had a great number of questions, 24 different questions, and we spent about 35 minutes on the questions. So that was great. A few things to mention as we look forward to these great cooler temperatures in October, we have a few more learning opportunities coming up in the next few months. And from the looks of this class today with over 91 viewers on Zoom and many more on Facebook Live, this was a successful class. So I hope that you will continue to join us for upcoming virtual seminars that we're having. Make sure that you're checking out our Facebook page from Mulcahy Law Firm and liking it and subscribing to our YouTube channel because we're putting all kinds of great content and free information on there for board members, managers, and homeowners. We've reached a total combined views on our YouTube channel of over 63,000 views since April of 2020. That is beyond my wildest dreams in terms of the popularity of these classes and of the videos that people are watching after the classes. So thank you so much for supporting our firm and supporting the different neighborhood services departments for all of these different cities, towns, and municipalities that we're working with to provide this free education to you. We also have some great free resources for board members. We've shown you a couple of cheat sheets today during this presentation. Our website at mulcahylawfirm.com has all of our cheat sheets, all 60 of them, all of our past videos that we've taught over the past two years as well. So I really encourage you, if you're looking for information or looking for answers to questions about how to run your association, is my board doing things correctly, go to our webpage at mulcahylawfirm.com and look at all of our free resources on there for you. We get a lot of positive feedback from owners and board members and managers about how easy the website is to navigate and how thankful they are to have a resource to answer questions. So we encourage you to take a look at our website. We also started a podcast and you can um, find information on that on our website as well or contact our firm. And don't forget, we have a class coming up, a virtual class with the Scottsdale Neighborhood College, and it's going to be in two days, this Thursday, October 20th, from 10 a.m. until 12 p.m. 
We're going to be discussing hot topics in the HOA and condo industry, and we're going to be covering all kinds of great things like water issues. We're going to be talking about electric vehicles. We're going to be talking about really what are the hot topics right now for associations, a more in-depth evaluation of short-term rentals. We have a really great class planned for Thursday with the City of Scottsdale. We're also going to be talking about amending CCNRs. Many of you are sitting on old CCNRs that really need to be updated. So we're going to give you a plan for how to best do that and how much it costs, why you need to do it, how difficult the process is. And we're going to give you an easy five-step process to help your association navigate doing an amendment to your documents that might be outdated. So hope you'll join us Um, again. It's going to be this Thursday, October 20th from 10 a.m. until noon. You have to register with the City of Scottsdale for this class. So I would encourage you to go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and you can find all the information on how to register for that Scottsdale class on Thursday there. Also, don't forget, we have our virtual first Friday free call-in on Friday, November 4th at 9 a.m. We always have a great turnout of people asking questions and we usually get through 50 or 60 questions each first Friday. So if you have any additional questions each month, make sure you're tuning in for that Zoom and Facebook Live. Additional details can be found on that on our website, and you can continue to submit questions right up until the morning of November 4th. Thanks again for being here today. It's our pleasure to partner with the neighborhood services departments from many different cities around the Valley to create this free education for board members, homeowners, and managers. I'd like to give a special shout out and thank you to the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for being our partners in this virtual HOA Condo Academy. We hope to continue to do programming for you for the rest of 2022, of course, and also all through 2023 so that we can continue to provide you with the resources that you need to make your communities better. So thanks everybody for being with us here today. I look forward to seeing some of you on the Scottsdale class on Thursday. And of course, hopefully most of you for our first Friday coming up the first Friday in November. Take care, everybody. Have a happy Halloween. And I look forward to seeing you in November or later this week. Take care. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The antenna bar Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.